0: Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorel College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business.
1: The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter.
0: Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Socialism appeared to have been discarded into the trash heap of history after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the demise of the Soviet Union, and China's free market reforms. But many younger Americans view socialism as favorably as capitalism today. and And the membership of the Democratic Socialists of America has more than doubled in the past five years. Opponents of socialism, which include the faculty of the Johnson Center, often raise the millions of persons who were killed under communism in the 20th century as a warning to would-be socialists today. But is this history truly relevant to the debate over socialism in contemporary America? Answering this question involves examining what is meant by liberalism, and then examining whether a truly liberal socialism is possible. Two of the greatest scholars of the 20th century, Friedrich Hayek and John Rawls, both weighed in on this question. Joining me on eConversations today to discuss these issues is Dr. Kevin Vallier, a professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, where he's also the director of the Philosophy, Politics, Economics, and Law program. Kevin studied philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis and then earned a Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of Arizona. Kevin has authored or edited uh, eight books and has published over 40 papers in professional journals, including a recent p- paper critiquing John Rawls's theory of liberal socialism, which is part of what we'll be talking about today. Well, welcome back to the show, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me back. Well, let's start by talking about uh, liberalism, because uh, you know, to sort of make sense of, of you know, where we're, the question we're addressing today, we didn't know what was meant by liberalism in, I guess, what sometimes today we might refer to as a classical sense?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I understand the liberal tradition as having a kind of broad underlying unity that includes classical liberals, but isn't limited to them. So I I think like four central values for the liberal is um, our political values, values that should be expressed in politics. um, And those are treating all as free, naturally free and equal, That is, no one is born the natural slave or servant of anyone else. So freedom and equality are basic uh, liberal values. On top of that are the values of toleration and a harmony of interests. So the doctrine of toleration is that we try to look at diverse views in our own society and uh, tolerate those that we dislike or disapprove of. Moreover, liberal orders often try to go further and to harmonize people's apparently conflicting interests, such as the interests between, say, capital and labor, um, or the interests between different social classes or groups. Um, So that's, I think, what makes for a liberal broadly, someone who believes in freedom, equality, toleration, and harmony of interests as their prime political values. Classical liberals tend to stress the importance of freedom from interference by government an equality, say, of opportunity, but not of shares. They accept broad-based toleration, um, including of people who are conservative, morally conservative, or religiously conservative. And finally, they stress the harmony of interests provided for by the market but de-emphasize it as it's found in democracy, democratic governance. The
0: toleration point, I think, is a, a really important one, because you know, and, and I think that's one that has to be learned both as us as individuals and I think probably also as, as a society because it's so natural for us to, you know, you know, think of children when they're playing, if a child wants to play with a toy and another kid has it, it's very natural to just go over and want to take it and that's, that maybe is your natural instinct and you have to learn to You know, respect and and tolerate others, and and recognize their their equality with you. That the other child has a you know as much desire to want to play with their toys as you do.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's important, and it's also important in the way that it manifests in institutions. So the way in which we have institutions that allow us. Not to interfere with one another at least or not to control and dominate these include i think most most importantly constitutional rights so that each person has their own space uh, to live their own lives in their own way uh, democratic governance for those issues where we can't really resolve them but we have to have a political solution markets where no political solution is required and we can solve problems of cooperation and free exchange and then the institution accepted by most liberals including many classical liberals of social safety nets in order to take out the really severe uh, risks that come um, from life in the market, um, so that people have a kind of way to withdraw um, or to insulate themselves um, from the kind of unpredictable nature uh, of markets, however good uh, they are.
0: And, and when we sometimes want to refer to a, a nation as liberal, I mean, I guess we're referring to a, a pretty broad. Uh, that that these values, these liberal values are pretty uh, widely accepted and then, like you say, uh, I guess instilled into some of the institutions and and also history and traditions uh, of, of a country as well, right?
1: Yes. I mean, so what's important here is not that everyone is sort of interested only in their own personal autonomy, that all they care about is their own freedom, that they don't try to serve any higher and overall causes, that they never put themselves... Under uh, any other any hierarchies, voluntarily, it um, doesn't mean any of that. Rather, it means that people accept certain values as political values, overarching values that should shape what government does, but doesn't necessarily uh, give a whole plan of life uh, for individuals. So, you know, you could have religiously conservative liberals who support the political values and who support liberal democratic capitalism. Um, so, it's very important to understand, I think, that liberalism is not a kind of personal ethos. It is not a complete philosophy of life.
0: And you know, when we talk about where liberalism arose, I mean, it was sort of like in England and, and maybe Northwestern Europe and, and certainly was uh, transplanted to the American colonies and, and, and helped shape the founding, right?
1: Yes, although um, I do think liberalism was actually a pretty small group of uh, philosophers, economists, and so on really until the 19th century. I mean, there are a lot of people being influential with liberal ideals, but they're often coming at them from very, very different directions than we ordinarily think for instance, Calvinist theology, which is, you know, reformed theology. Um, that was very, very important in the preconditions uh, for say British, um, or Dutch, um, or American uh, liberal communities, but they, they came in a very different route. And they they sort of weren't necessarily tolerant in the ways that we would ordinarily associate with liberalism. Uh, I'm not trying to emphasize that liberalism is the sort of new kid on the block that could be dismissed. Just, just to sort of give a fuller picture of the way in which I think certain liberal ideals and practices arose, particularly out of Protestant Christianity.
0: And so then you know. When we think about some of the, uh, the uh, horrors of communism, or the, I know there's a new museum, I think, in Washington called uh, the Victims of Communism uh, Museum. One immediate reaction to to that was that like Russia and China were were not what we would have called at the start, you know, at the start of the 20th century liberal nations. They, there was no real liberal tradition in in Russia. It had been ruled by the Tsar and they still had serfs and they certainly didn't have some of those uh, same liberal traditions as Britain had.
1: Yeah, and I mean it, it you know, I've been learning a little bit lately about liberal movements in Russia, which it did exist, but it's certainly the case that Uh, Russian institutions never approximated liberalism to the extent that we saw in Western Europe, Um, not even close in many cases. Um, And so what you have are, you know, essentially feudal institutions that are seen as oppressive and stultifying, but instead of liberalism uh, getting there through certain kinds of reforms, the gradual limitation of aristocratic privilege, the uh, establishment of the rule of law and constitutional uh, governance, uh, and democratic voting and party voting, you instead saw this kind of this you know, communist revolution uh, that rejected uh, many of the values uh, that liberals hold dear. They rejected toleration, they they were a state-imposed atheist state, they rigidly persecuted religion, and they certainly rejected the harmony of interests um, because they thought the capitalist class had to be liquidated, and indeed they did liquidate them. Um, and so what you had was essentially Sort of feudal societies, or China's a little more complicated and developed um, than than the Russian case. Um, that that leapt immediately towards a kind of illiberal socialism. So yes.
0: And, and so then you know, it's always uh, tricky at some point to say you know what countries do you want to say have experimented with socialism, but you know Britain after World War Two for our. 30 or 35 years, between about 1946 and 1979 under their labor governments, uh, I I don't know if you'd... I guess you you could make a claim that they experimented with socialism. They certainly had a a, a fairly wide government ownership of some of the important industries, and, you know, in addition to creating the National Health Service, but, you know, we, we didn't see uh, socialism de- degenerate in, in Britain like, as it did with communism in Russia or China.
1: Sure. I mean, it's important to distinguish between kind of dictatorial socialism and democratic socialism. I mean, even if socialism is illiberal, such as with its treatment of religion, um, you can have a parliamentary democratic uh, socialism, um, a kind of gradualist reformist socialism, or sometimes called Fabian socialism, or you can have the kind of revolutionary uh, Marxist socialism. And, and, and while Britain had a number of Marxists, they never really had a successful Marxist movement. Um, they, the Labour Party was a kind of democratic socialist movement that was indeed attempting to be liberal in some respects. The UK got to the point where maybe about 25% of the means of production were publicly owned, but they never got anywhere near close to the labor ideal of a society where capital is publicly owned and managed and monitored and planned. Um, so while I think they attempted it, um, they got about a quarter of the way there, and then they had then there were forces that um, led them to go in a different direction, and I think there's some systematic reasons for that. Uh, it, it's really remarkable when you think about it, there's been never been a Democratic people that has chosen to be classically liberal, but it's also the case that there's no Democratic people that's ever chosen socialism in, uh, in any kind of long term or permanent way. It looks like when you let most people vote, you get some variations uh, of, of um, social control between markets and the welfare state that you most public seem to buy certain mixes. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's very important that democratic socialism never got anywhere close to its goals. Um, there was just too much disagreement and diversity, and that's going to matter for later in the conversation. So
0: we'll we'll get back to that point, but that's just uh, you know I guess a little bit of a preview. Um, yeah. then, then let's talk a little bit more about then what would be involved with like uh, the notion of liberal socialism because you have a paper where you talk about. To what extent it's not possible, or, or there are some internal contradictions with it. But before we can get to the contradictions, I think we need to understand you know, what what is it involved when you think about people in the liberal tradition also sort of trying to embrace uh, some elements of socialism.
1: Yeah. So I mean, most of the liberal tradition since the late 19th century has moved in the direction of taking on some insights from socialism, um, but not really getting anywhere near close to all the way there. Even the early 20th century liberals were saying, yeah, there's got to be private property and capital. Um, So what it would be to have liberal socialism, as many people conceived of it, is that you would combine liberal constitutional rights, um, parliamentary democratic government, um, with the abolition of the private ownership of the means of production, at least outside of small business. Um, And so the idea is that the government would own and operate the commanding heights of the economy, the big sources of capital, and it would plan them uh, in accord with the benefit of all um, under equal terms. So that's really what liberal socialism was envisioned to be. And there were a lot of people that thought that was the way to go.
0: And and one way to sort of make sense of this, because as somebody coming from the outside, you know, I, I would normally think, well, property rights have to be extremely important, and socialism starts intruding on, on people's property rights. But in some liberal conceptions, if property rights don't don't have the uh, same primacy, I think, as uh, some free-market economists might want to try to place on them.
1: That's right, although even John Rawls, who was open to liberal socialism, or a related but less socialist economic form known as property-owning democracy, not Thatcher's sense, but very different. Even he thought that a basic liberal rights included a right to personal property and a right to freedom of occupation. So even Rawls thought the government can't choose a job for you. Um, and I also think that it includes the right to own your own um, home. Um, so, so liberals, it's very, I mean, Rawls' liberal socialism would have included protecting those two kinds of property rights um so yeah property is going to be important it's private it's property and productive resources is where the dispute is who should own the goods that make other goods
0: and and then i guess uh, particularly you could look at like the the large corporations uh or the banks that are allocating uh capital in in the economy those those are the places where you can say like well maybe you have the government run that but you can have some other forms of of private property and you know that 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 private property helps uh, people uh, you know, realize their their own selves, their self actualization you know, People be able to structure yeah, their this lives. That's all true. But these are yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. It, I mean, and these are these are all true, but they're all things that liberal socialists denies. I mean, they think that you know, if you don't have socialism, all these forms of oss- ossification, class rule, inequality, domination, a lack of growth and creativity among the working classes, all of these things are going to be. Uh, widespread. Now, of course, I, uh, I'm just telling you what I think they hold. I, I hold something close to the opposite. Um, but nonetheless, I think that's what they would say.
0: Now, uh, one of the great critics of socialism in, in the 20th century was Friedrich Hayek, and in his particular, his, his very well-known uh, book, the, the Road to Serfdom. And in that uh, book, he lays out an argument that certainly uh, uh, modern free market economists uh, like to repeat very frequently. And and he made an argument about how it was that the the worst tend to get on top in socialism. And so that is, in in some sense, a a very important challenge to any idea of liberal socialism or socialism that's not going to go to the totalitarian uh, length. So tell us, if you can, a little bit about uh, Hayek's point here.
1: Well, actually, I think Hayek has a number of points against liberal socialism. One is just looking at the kind of reality of if you concentrate a great deal of power, that you're going to get bad people running the show. And that at least with markets, even if you have large concentrations of capital, they can come and go and you can still avoid monopoly. And so Hayek's going to think, look, if you, you centralize things in the way that socialism does, that's you're going to have bad rulers. But Hayek also said, even if you had good rulers, they couldn't solve the relevant problems because there were computational problems that couldn't be solved, which is how to determine exchange rates between goods and services without private property and the means of production. So the difficulty is that you don't have any group that can collect all the economic, I'm just telling you as you know, of course, but you know, collect all the economic knowledge that's necessary to actually carry out planning the economy. That essentially a private property system is a kind of bottom-up system of social cognition, um, a system that's much, much more intelligent Um, than any small group of planners imposing their will from the top down. And the result, I think, um, will inevitably not just lower productivity, but a massively intrusive government that's constantly um, organizing, poking, prodding people, and almost always producing disappointing results. So there's a a lack of freedom there, and the tendency to um, tinker and control, combined with bad leaders at the top, means that you can expect the system to gradually degrade into something more like Marxist socialism, or else the society takes a different turn and moves away from liberal socialism, which is basically what all liberal orders did—like basically all of them.
0: Because I mean, like you know, when when I read Hayek, he, he's not denying the possibility that there could be some very good people, uh, you know, wanting to be uh, who are socialists and, and uh, ascribe to some of these democratic and liberal values, but at, at some point as you say, and, and part of it's due to some of the inherent ac- economic contradictions of socialism, they're going to end up debating, and, and they, they sort of like clo- can't de- uh, close debate amongst themselves, and so it look like they're, uh, you know, just piddling around and, and not you know, getting around to making the they important- They and, and small. Pardon? Yeah. yeah they like look, you,
1: yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and, and then like, you know, I, I guess the other part of it that I, I see in there that, you know, liberalism always involves tolerance, and that's a learned value, and. And you know, when, when you're disagreeing with people and you're already aggregating a lot of power in the state, it, it's really kind of hard to say, OK, you can order people around like in the economic sphere, but then you know, you're not supposed to order them around like in the political sphere.
1: Yeah, I think a, in my, my article, there's an important analogy here between liberals like Rawls who say, well, look, people are going to reasonably disagree about religion, and that means the state can't successfully or rightly impose a religion on everyone. It would violate people's freedom and equality um it would undermine the harmony of interests it would be intolerant but moreover it would destabilize the entire order because there's a huge number of people that couldn't be on board with it and accepted on moral terms the only stability that one could arrive at is one that was imposed by violence or force um and in my article i make the argument that the same is true of the kinds of economic planning that liberal socialism would require So, you know, think about imposing a religion that uh, speaks to all elements of life, like Catholicism or Islam, um, where there's detailed art, architecture, moral values, theology, books, you know, a a clerical class, and so on and so forth. Imposing a particular religion would involve an enormous amount of interference, and there'd be a great amount of resistance from people who are constantly uh, being tinkered with. And I see liberal socialism... As running into the same problem because it has to impose certain economic plans that do something very very much like this they don't necessarily poke and prod people in matters of faith but they poke and prod people in matters of their own private economic lives constantly adjusting readjusting regulating deregulating re-regulating taxing 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 um and so the, the result is going to be a destabilization of a liberal order that is socialist, such that it's going to have to go in one of two directions. It's either going to have to retreat from socialism and do something more like most countries do now, or liberal liberal democratic welfare state capitalism, or it's going to have to abandon liberalism. And indeed, this was, you know, a lot of people say that Hayek exaggerated the threat of socialism. Um, And I think they often misrepresent his argument. But I think his argument was essentially that the principles of liberalism and socialism could not be successfully combined in reality. And I think that reality bears him out. The mere fact that there are these Scandinavian nations, um, they redistribute a great deal of wealth, but they, they don't actually tinker with markets very much. Um, and so what you see is, I think, a vindication of Hayek's thesis, because every society that went socialism, that went full socialist, rejected liberalism. And every liberal society rejected full socialism. And,
0: and that's a good point of bringing about uh, this. Scandinavian countries because, you know, uh, the the measures of economic freedom that uh, uh, economists have developed and that we use show that other than on the size of government, uh, the element of the size of government, yeah. they actually have a very good, you know, they actually are very qu- quite pro-free market, I mean, more free market than the United States. One thing they do is they do have high taxes and they do redistribute a, a lot of, of money, but you know They are sort of respecting people's rights to earn the money, but then they, you, you can tax it, and you are uh, allowing markets to function in many ways there.
1: The other uh, thing that a lot of people don't understand about these countries is, um, as my, a friend of mine, a Swedish economist, said, we redistribute from the top 90% to the bottom 90%. So almost all the redistribution in Sweden is just moving pe- money within a certain person's life, <laughs> right? So, you know, for savings programs and things, which they aren't the kind of take from the rich and give to the poor. The, the Scandinavian countries think generally everyone has to have buy-in to these programs for them to, to work well. So every almost everybody pays in and almost everybody gets something out. So it's very different than what a lot of people have envisioned in terms of redistribution. Um, so, you know, th- in a sense, I think this is a little bit uh, better arrangement from a classical liberal perspective, and it's certainly not socialism or anything uh, remotely approaching it. So,
0: you know, some of the you know, contradictions that you point out, and then, like I, I think, where you can, uh, as you allude to, in Britain when they were experimenting to some extent with with socialism. Uh, you know, some of those also uh, seem very reminiscent of what uh, economist Ludwig von Mises talked about in terms of like a middle-of-the-road policy is, is well, he, he thought it was going to lead to uh, a socialism or uh, a, a government control, but there are inherent contradictions with these sort of middle-of-the-road policies where you you try to have the government do some, you know, take, you know make some important decisions in society and the economy, but not, you know, take total command over people? Yeah, I mean, I do think there are some kinds of
1: policies, particularly with the regulatory state that kind of tend to uh, snowball. Um, I don't think there are as many of them as Mises thought. I think probably the better way to understand or way I would modify the argument is to say, if you look at the underlying principles that are used to justify middle-of-the-road policy, um, the only way to realize them is to move from middle-of-the-road to Mm full-blown socialism. So it's not necessarily the case that there's this inevitable causal dynamic that once you intervene a few times in the economy, you're you're, uh, going to socialism uh, inescapably or something like that. And I actually don't think that was Mises' view. I just think sometimes he was a little imprecise in his language. The idea is really more that, um, yes, the government might interfere with something at random, but that, that's not going to lead to, to socialism. But if the government starts to um, adopt as reasons of state <laughs> these underlying egalitarian principles, then its attempts to realize them in the middle of the roadways won't be satisfactory. And so we'll continue to have to push further and further. This is what Hayek was worried about when the Labor Party started talking about assigning people jobs, um, was that freedom of occupation was going to disappear. And there, even Rawls's liberal socialism would, would object. And so the idea is that the tinkering steamrolls because people are trying to realize principles that are incompatible with liberal freedom. That's what I'd say.
0: So, if you could could elaborate on that a little bit, because I think it's a really fascinating aspect of of Britain's experience. And uh, with the Labour Party actually starting to, because there there were some labour shortages. And, and I guess it was related to that, and, and the, the Labour Party sort of like almost getting up to the precipice or getting re- the recognition that they'd have to go a lot farther to, in to order and try to make uh, the, the economy work. So if you could tell us a little bit of that. I mean,
1: the striking thing is that, you know, Hayek's in London,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as the, and the war ends, and people are saying, look what we did in war, we can do in peace, right? And Hayek is seeing, I think, that, oh, wow, you know, the Labor Party's trying to do all of these different things take over the economy, solve labor shortages, fix prices and wages, um, all kinds of different tactics that were being guided by people that were sincerely committed socialists, but who were reformist and democratic. So they were trying to get there gradually, like the athlete government. Um, and what they wanted to do, um, Hayek thought would invariably lead them to go further. And so, you know, the society that that the UK created, acquired what was often called the British disease um, and the most richest economy in the world, basically. Um, um, uh, Didn't grind to a halt, but slowed down a great deal, Um, and uh, the result was that the people um, chose a conservative government um, that uh, changed course in pretty big ways. Um, so, yeah, I would say, yeah, there was about, third, third, as you said, about 30 years of experimentation with trying to realize socialist principles to various degrees, those causing um, all kinds of problems and dislocations and inefficiencies and controls. Uh, Hayek seeing these in the 40s, I mean, he's writing before the Second World War ends, um, but he's thinking about the sort of post-war era, thinking the Allies will win, well, uh, what's going to happen? What are the principles of social organization going to be? I do think Hayek was right that the fundamental principles of socialism and liberalism are in tension, such that in, in reality, democratic peoples will have to choose between mostly liberalism and uh, mostly socialism.
0: Well, that, that's, uh, that's very fascinating. So, I mean, you know, so, We're coming near the end of our time, so is there anything you know, you'd like to add or, or anything that you know, we, we haven't covered that you think is important to the story?
1: Yeah, um, I I think one thing it's important to do is to see the the diversity in the liberal tradition, um, the ways in which it's tried to engage both conservatism and socialism and take on insights from it. Liberal tradition is very flexible. And a lot of your listeners, if they're younger, are encountering these kind of post-liberal or anti-liberal views. Um, And they're coming to associate liberalism with something very, very specific that's oftentimes a caricature of the liberal tradition itself. It's a very broad range of liberal views. They vary a great deal over the last 200 years from one another. They do share the certain core that I outlined, but I think it's really important to actually read people like Hayek and to read people like Rawls to understand the sort of unity and diversity of the liberal tradition and the way that it engages other systems of thought, say religious systems of thought or socialist systems of thought. Um, So, you know, I've just been writing on on my next book on this and trying to encourage um, um, writing to illiberal readers uh, to see the diversity and unity of the liberal tradition altogether um, and then to try to understand the ways that people have tried to draw on insights of other traditions like socialism, but have found that when they actually tried to do the mix, it didn't really
0: work. Well, yeah, and, and I think that's you know part of the, uh, I think I, I do like this idea of the rich tradition of liberalism and, you know, and and i think one of the things that has evolved over time is that the people within the liberal traditions now have some very different uh, ideas of what exactly freedom in, entails and and you know the, the whether government uh, and democratic government is necessarily coercive or not and you know, and that's where somewhere you know, today modern liberals and and conservatives maybe disagree yeah. with each other so well, thanks very yep. much for coming on and talking about this. We enjoyed it very much. And thank you all for joining us. Thanks. us again see you next time for another E-Conversations.
1: <laughs> this has been e a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.
0: Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorel College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business.